listeners, uh, we are continuing on here in Elizabeth City at ALC. And uh, yeah, man, this, is, this has been awesome. What do you think, Sam? I've had a great time here. Yeah, this has been really fun. Uh, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, not a bad town. Um, way out there, though. Like, I feel like I'm in the <laughs> middle of nowhere. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of people I've talked to, too, live like way up in Chesapeake, uh, Virginia Beach, which I don't blame them. You know, there's probably more to do there, but... See, I think I could buy a little house out I, in the. I think I could. I think very happy. I think what I would need is a. I think I'd want a boat for sure. I want to be able to get a boat, uh, or live down in the Outer Banks. I think the Outer Banks would be really sweet. But yeah. um, is there a good fishing in the bay here? I don't know. I don't know. We haven't talked about that. We'll have to get into yeah. that. Yeah, probably some redfish. Good fishing. Well, Trout. and also like uh, as a town, I feel like this is one of those towns that really supports the Coast Guard. I've seen so many signs that hey, we love our Coast Guard. We love our coasties and. Um, it's a town that employs 1,800 Coast Guard, yeah. uh, whether that be active duty or, or civilian or contractor. So um, anyways, what are we getting into? I think uh, we're talking to ISD next. Sweet. I don't know what that stands for, okay. yet, but uh, we'll learn. Uh, lots of acronyms around here. We've talked to the product lines a whole bunch. <laughs> and so now we're going to get into the, uh, we'll say the way cooler uh, uh, offices here. Uh, I mean, just different. They, they, they kind of touch every single other office um, and, and are important in their own aspects. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, Kenny, let's do this, man. Uh, so we're talking with ISD information. So I'm, I'm going to leave it to Katrina here. Hey, <laughs> yeah. w- welcome to the podcast. This is great Hi. to have you. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here, um, especially for um, our division, um, we, um, do a lot of great things. Um, we support the entire, not only ALC, but just the entire Coast Guard from so many different avenues. So we are super excited to be here. Yeah. I heard you talking about the small town. Um, are you from Elizabeth city? Actually, my dad was Coast Guard. So, um, I was born in Alaska. So nice. Yep. Sick of Alaska. So, Uh yep. But, um, yeah, it's a great area. Um, and is this where your family ended up yes, and, and stuck, yes. stuck around? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So yes, yeah, so it's a very small town, but it is a very, you know, everyone loves the Coast Guard and, yeah. you know, um, very pro Coast Guard. So yeah. Uh, how's the fishing? Kenny was asking. It's It's decent. So decent? it depends. It's really hot right now. So, you okay. know, I wouldn't go out when it's super hot, yeah. but there's a lot of crappie right now. Um, okay. Yep. Oh, is it is the bay freshwater or no, saltwater? No, it's it's not like brackish. It's brackish maybe. Brackish. Okay. Yeah. Oh wow. I don't Do think you I have alligators? In I've never seen an alligator, but I've heard people say they've seen an alligator. Really? So I, I've never seen one, but I mean, I don't know how true that is. It could be a rumor. You okay. Know, small town rumor. Yeah. As <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a first time visitor to East City uh, or anybody in this area, what would you say? Like, hey, you need to go check this out uh, in our town. Um, I would say, I mean, especially if, you know, you're drinking beer, you know, you can yeah. go to some of the bars downtown. Yep. They've really like, um, are promoting a bunch of little new, um, bars. There's a wine bar. Um, yep. and then there's a new, is it seven sounds? We did seven, seven, seven sounds, sounds last night. Yeah, did, did you like yeah, that? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. It yeah. Was I love yeah. that. It's beautiful. You walk outside and see the river. It's yep. really beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a museum downtown, um, you know, there's a lot of history to the area. So they have yeah. the art walk, um, I believe it's like once a month. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool to go do. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah. And it can't beat the uh, going down to the Outer Banks too. Oh, You're not yeah. that far from there. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Birthplace yes. aviation. The coolest thing is when you're laying on the beach and you see, you know, a 60 or 65 <laughs> or even C-130 fly over. That's yeah, yep. cool. Yeah. yeah. So. Predominantly helicopters though. Yeah. So I'm, I'm taking <laughs> out of that. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about ISD and, sure. and what uh, y'all do here? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we support the Information System Division, um, and that's, like I said um, before, for the entire Coast Guard. Um, I think a lot of people think that it's just ALC, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a 24-hour line that is always available. We have someone here all the time to support. Um, and we do all of the applications, so all the from the development, operations, security, um, for security, um, for information assurance, program management, um, configuration management. We handle all of that. Um, so, for example, the data that's on your iPads when you fly. So we help handle that. Um we also work really closely with ESD um, and making sure that those applications like EAL um, is up and running um, at all times. Um, you know, we um, we are constantly monitoring from a security standpoint, making sure there's no cyber, um, you know, uh, malware, anything like that um, mm-hmm. can happen. Um is your biggest thing Almas? Is that probably the so biggest? So that's, everybody says Almas. Everybody says Almas, yes. right? Everybody I know you says, said EAL, yes. but we all think of it as Almas. Yes, yeah, so yes, yeah. everybody, yes. Yeah. So Almas is, um, yes, one of our biggest things. Um, we have CG Limbs, um, CG Tims. We have all kinds of different applications. And one thing to, to say about ISD is a lot of people think that like, ISD is like just the information systems where we basically give you the the software to use. And it is that. But we also have another huge part of that where we have the development piece where we are working really hard on working with the end users to make sure we're giving you exactly what you need. We have um, where we go in and you you, you come to me and say, hey, this is what I want. And they literally go in and they create it for you what you want. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have the testing phases and making sure that, you know, it, it works. And then we have the operations side where we make sure we maintain that. And with that comes, um, we have a lot of interaction with contracting. We have to make sure that none of your applications expire, that we have, we budget for that, you yeah. know? So there's a huge piece of um, the IT department that a lot of people don't know. Um, so Any uh, any almost changes you want to see there, Kenny? I was just about <laughs> to say, like, they must be doing a really good job because... I haven't heard of any complaints or people talking we about know. stuff. So yeah. Oh, we um, know if there's a, yeah. Oh, there's probably, I mean, there's one thing that I've always wanted. Um, and this is, it's so minor, but like when I go to read the aircraft books yeah. and I take a look at um, like the hours and what the next hourly inspection is, yeah. you got to scroll down through a whole bunch of them. And the total hours is at the top of that page. Yeah. But as soon as you scroll down, that total hours goes away. So unless I remember those total hours, I won't be able to compare those total hours to what there actually is. Yep. And so it's like, like, all right, what is it? And, you know, because you usually want to say, oh, it's five hours out to this inspection. Or, yeah. And we got two hours we can't exceed uh, so until this. So that stuff. how would can, I change that? Yeah. So basically you could just, you know, um, you can submit a CG fix-it ticket to us and we can look into that. Or you can just contact, I mean, you could contact me directly. And then okay. we could look into something like that for you Everybody guys. call Katrina. No, if you, no, <laughs> no. Put in a CG fix-it ticket. Okay, <laughs> C- CG fix-it ticket, got it, yeah. Um, uh, what challenges are you guys facing right now? Um, Some of the challenges we're facing is really cyber. Okay. So our security side has really, um, I mean, we have audits literally like every single week to go through and make sure, you know, you hear from an accounting standpoint, like I'm sure, you you know, if you don't know, but accounting, they do audits all the time. Well, we are audited literally 
every, it seems like every single week. And they want to know that we have the most up-to-date information, all of that. And so that comes in from a cyber. You guys know there's been a lot of cybersecurity attacks. Um, we have to make sure that, you know, we're always at risk, you know. Mm-hmm. So just making sure we're up-to-date, that, you know, we're making sure that we have, we're in compliance with everything and that we don't have that because it's a huge risk for the Coast Guard. Yeah. So I would say that's probably our biggest one. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, any big changes on the horizon as far as uh, yes. Almas EAL? What's yes. what's going to be happening? Yes. Or Amos or ACMS yes. or yeah, don't leave all these other ones all out. Of them. Yeah. So yes, we have something called the One Log that's going to be coming out. Okay. Um, and so the One Log is one application where you can go into every single thing that you just discussed. Yeah, it will be one login, and then it will have your your. Um, what your credentials are and what you're able to access within those yeah. Um, versus you having to go into Amos, Amos, um, all these other things. You have one, um, just one login. So it'll be one page where you go and you can click on all these things. That's so we're sweet. working extremely hard on this. We've got a group that um, has done an excellent job. So yeah, so we're working real hard on that. We're excited about it. If That's you can make sure that uh, the password resets every three days yeah. and then it can't have oh, anything, <laughs> no, like, yeah. <laughs> that would, that would be really helpful. Thanks. Sorry. You used this password 30 times ago. Yeah. You right. still can't right. reuse it. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. So Not many enough passwords. characters. Yeah. Um, any other things you want to tell any fleet listeners out there about ISD or uh, Almas or, you know, whatever. I mean, we use Almas probably the most yeah. just as ops pilots, but. Yeah, so I would just say that um, we're always here to support you. Um, we, you know, we work really hard over there. Um, we have people all over the world working for ISD. Actually, I think it's interesting to know. A lot of people think people are just in ALC. Yeah. They're not. They're everywhere. Um, so yeah, we had someone go overseas and was working. And so yeah, I think that. We'll do whatever we can to help you guys out. Um, just reach out and let us know if it's not working, if it is working, or if there's ways to make whatever application you're working with better. Please let us know um, so that we can, you know, make sure you guys get what you need to be. Yeah. I mean, thank you for building the interface that makes our flight scheduling, logbooks, you know, yeah. tracking, maintenance, everything just yeah. so much easier. Yeah. We're not doing paper anymore, so that's good. And access on the... Uh, and the EFB access, yeah, that is. AMD, I think, is the... Sorry, AMD. Thank you, Kenny. <laughs> yeah. The AMD What's access. AMD stand for? Auxiliary mobility device? Aviation mobility device? Aviation yeah, we mobility got some head checks. Aviation mobility device. We got device. in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I only asked the question because I had no idea. Thanks for putting me on the spot. Yeah. Well, Katrina, thank you so much for thank jumping you. in here. And uh, uh, we really appreciate everything you yeah. do for us. Thank you. I just want to give a shout out to the Please. ISD division. They've been amazing and yes. work really, really hard. So just thank you to that whole entire team. So. Yeah. Don't forget the people that are in the background making all these things work. That's right. Yeah. Yes. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank Thanks. you for having me. I all appreciate right. it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll do a little hot seat here. Right, and hot seat complete. We got uh, two wonderful O5s here sitting in front of us. Uh, Commander Papil, let's start with you, sir. Uh, just give us a little background. What do you do here at uh, ALC? Uh, and more importantly, what is the beer you're drinking in front of you? All right, afternoon, guys. Uh, so, uh, I am the Engineering Services Division Chief right now, and I am drinking a Voodoo Ranger, uh, Voodoo Ranger Juicy Haze IPA. I'm a little disappointed. I had a uh, a 15 pack of Founders All Day IPA back oh. at the office that oh, I forgot yeah. to bring over. I thought that was really fitting for the uh, the podcast today, since you guys have been at it for uh, oh. 
I mean, it's only hours it's, it's only point. two in the afternoon, so there, <laughs> we can go back to your office after this <laughs> so, and uh, continue our conversation. Sounds good. Sounds good. Where are you, where you been stationed? You sixty five, sixties. Uh, academy grad, 05, two years on, on the cutter while my eyes healed from PRK surgery. Nice. Uh, went to flight school after that. Uh, was fortunate enough to uh, to fly the Mighty H-65 out of flight school in Atlantic City. Uh, did five years there. Um, did the student engineering syllabus in my fifth year and was uh, fortunate enough to pick up the uh, AO job in Barber's Point. I uh, did three oh. years out there short toured out of Hawaii to, uh, to head to grad school. So I I threw my name in the hat for grad school, knowing that that's kind of what I wanted to do next. And uh, Are you the only Coast Guard aviator short tour out of Hawaii? No, I think there's been others with that sad, same sad story. So, Man. Yeah. Question their judgment. But, but, uh, okay. but yeah, I threw my name in the hat, and four people applied for three slots and structures that year. So, And one of them, uh, I think, wasn't uh, didn't meet all the requirements. So uh, essentially three people uh, applied. applied for three jobs and, uh, and I was fortunate enough to, uh, to get picked up for grad school. So I did two years, uh, at Purdue, uh, with, uh, with a structures degree there. Uh, and I've been at ALC for three years now. So the first year I worked in ESD doing config management stuff. So aircraft configurations, cyber security, uh, and a handful of other things. And then was, uh, fortunate enough to get some experience in the product line. So I went over to SRR, uh, to be the, uh, 65 product line engineer for a year, uh, made 05, and then they shipped me back to ESD to run the division over there. So Sweet. Well, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Commander Grork, welcome. Uh, yeah. Give us a little spiel, what you do. Yeah. Well, hello, hello. Uh, well, I'll start. I got a yingling here. You got to start uh, with the beer. You know, absolutely. I listen to the podcast, so I'll stick with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you were kind enough to provide it for me because I came empty-handed like a, a real fool here. And, uh, <laughs> but America's oldest brewery, you can't go wrong with the yingling, right? Uh, so I, uh, yeah, Sean Rourke, I went to, I came through OCS in 06 and then, uh, went to MSST New York. I spent a couple years there riding around on boats, having a great time. Uh, recognized that, uh, the most fun was going to be continuing doing stuff. So I went to flight school, yep. uh, from there, uh, put in for a little bit of everything was mostly interested in getting back to the West coast. I'm from California. Uh, Where so I had, uh, I'm from the Sacramento area. Sacramento. Okay. Yeah. So I had, a. Uh, had all the West Coast units landed and just uh, ended up getting San Diego, which uh, was not even the top of my list, strangely what? enough, which is pretty crazy. Really? Right? Yeah. Oh, no way. So, but got San Diego, uh, which worked out great because I landed there with a bunch of uh, some guys that I went to flight school, some cases OCS with, and then we've stayed together for much of our career. That's um, awesome. And so, uh, yeah, uh, guys that you were stationed with are in the, were in Mobile, like Matt Carlton. Yep. And, uh, yep. And then Joe Plunkett's up, and we all we spent most, yep. most of our careers together at this point. So, Joe, yeah, uh, yeah. So, at any rate, uh, from San Diego up to Kodiak, uh, and then from Kodiak, uh, I got there. I got picked up for engineering. Uh, just did my normal three year tour there. The last year was in syllabus. Uh, from there to Clearwater, uh, I was the op at EO for a year, and then I fleeted up to the AEO job there. Uh, rolled through the AEO job there for three years. Uh, and then came here and I'm in my second year here. The first year I worked for Ryan uh, yep. over in ESD. I ran the aviation sustainment branch. Um, and then I uh, moved over this last summer here or this summer, I guess, to industrial operations division uh, where I'm the industrial operations division chief right now. Did you do uh, grad school on your own? I did. Yeah, framework? I did it while I was in Clearwater. Okay. Uh, I just rolled through an MBA. Um, I thought that was interesting too, that you didn't go through your student syllabus until what you were six years in. Yeah. I was, I was like late to the, late to the party. So yeah. uh, I didn't, I didn't get in. Uh, I was my third try when I got picked up. So, okay. but I liked the work. It remind. I mean, I loved being on the hangar deck. I worked in Avenge all three years that I was in Kodiak. And right. so I kind of just kept applying for it. Um, 
until I was, until they were going to tell me no more. Were uh, you, you weren't an 04 going through the engineering. I was. So I got, I got select. Well, I got selected for 04 while I was in the in-doc. Okay. So then I pinned it right as I, essentially as I finished the syllabus, I pinned 04. Yeah. Um, cause, but I got selected. Yeah. Well, that week that I was at headquarters, Rebecca, the, she's a uh, works in 41. She runs the place. Basically she, yeah. she put the message up. I had no idea. So yeah, it was nice. Little. Does it, I mean, I know we're going to jump into what your specific jobs here at ALC are, but does that ever, did you ever feel like you were a little bit behind the, the normal curve of being an engineer or is it like something that if somebody's aspiring to be an engineer, like, Hey, it's okay to go, uh, you know, late stage lieutenant, early 04. I think the answer to that is uh, like yes and yes. So okay. yeah, I mean, there okay. was a moment when I got picked up, right? I mean, I was, uh, I, I'm in Kodiak. I'm, I'm already five, you know, second, it's my second year of my second tour at this point, right? Uh, I was an FE and, and thought this is probably not going to happen. So I was fully leaning into like, okay, what do I want to do now? Really going towards like either FSO or really tracking to try to be competitive for an AOPS job. And, um, uh, but I was like, well, I put in for this. Like, let's keep putting in for it too. Might as well, yeah. Might as well right? Like, yeah. and, and I, I wanted it. And so when I got it initially, yeah, I was, you know, by far the most senior person in my group. And and uh, so there was an element of like, oh, I'm a little bit of a fish out of water here, it feels like. And then, uh, but 41 in the program, I mean, it, it, it set me up to get right back on track. And that's where the Clearwater piece came in. Um, I just did that year in OPAT, which uh, was technically an 04 job anyways. Um traditionally filled by an 03, but that gave me that year to really familiarize with the OPAT mission, which is so unique. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're running two air stations in a, in another country basically. Yeah. Right. Oh, like, yeah. um, and so the logistics of that and dealing with the state department and all the nuance of it is, is gave me a year to really familiarize with that. And then yep. to fleet up to the big AEO where now it's, you know, there's 330 people on the hangar deck. The EO changed out that year. Most of the other uh, AEOs changed out that year. So, um, I probably would have been super stuck without it. Rory Yoder, he's a, he's a, yeah, no Rory. So yeah, yeah. So he's over in Europe right now. He was the, him and I were the only two left after that summer. Uh, really? and I think I would have, I would have died without Rory. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but, and you got to do three air stations in a row, which is something that a lot of, you know, ops pilots really look forward to doing and, and being able to fly. I mean, what do you, you're on number four, five fourth tour I think. You're on your fourth yeah. tour. Yeah. So, man, that's awesome. And don't, um, don't forget, Sean is also the 2021 uh, or 2020 Engineer of the Year. Engineer of the Year. Really? <clears throat> Cheers yeah. to that. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So he made up for time pretty quickly there. <laughs> it's just right place, right time. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, you didn't think I was going to let you get away. <laughs> I was hoping you would. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, I mean, we were jumping into the acronyms of ALC that probably not many people know about because we've already talked to a lot of people know product line manager. Hey, we're going to call tech services. They're going to tell us what the heck we need to do with a specific problem with our uh, problem with our airframe. But um, you guys are ESD. We talked to ISD already and, and IOD. What do you do? So we'll start with you, Commander Papilla. Like what exactly is ESD? So engineering and services division is essentially your your central engineering office for uh, uh, for both the logistics center here and really Coast Guard Aviation as, as a whole. So I really like to describe uh, ESD as, as being about a mile wide and a mile deep because we handle everything from uh, all CA prime unit and tech services. So all your new rescue equipment you get from your new SAR warrior vest that we're working on, the new Triton 2 rescue swimmer. You guys do like helmets and uh, are you helmets. doing your dry suits now too, right? So all that's centralized at ALC now. So yeah. your um, your units order them directly from ALC. We stock that here and that's that's really an efficiency and cost savings mechanism. Yeah. But on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, 
Uh, we also have our cybersecurity office here in the engineering services division as well. So it was, I think, two years ago we got our first uh, aviation ISSO or information system security officer uh, here. And from there, we've expanded uh, with an additional two uh, civilian and two contractors that are really working specifically in cybersecurity. So, um, and on the other spectrums, uh, technical information management. So all of your maintenance procedure cards, all of your publications in terms of managing um, the storage update uh, to all of those manuals, that's all an engineering uh, services division. Do you write new uh, MPC cards? Uh, so, MPC cards is a way, bad way to say it, right? It's maintenance procedure card cards. M so MP cards. MP cards. Same as the ATM machine. Yeah. That's fine. That's true. Okay, MPC cool. Card. Do you sure. still write new <laughs> MPC cards? <laughs> no, the product lines are primarily writing them with the exception of uh, ground support and a couple functions that live uh, you know, within ESD. But uh, in terms of processing them, uh, making sure that they're formatted correctly and then actually getting them uploaded into the system and that the, the CG22, the update process, all that, that's managed with, within our tech info, uh, tech info management branch. Oh, okay. Um, so we also have Airwind Sustainment, which Sean used to work in, and uh, that you can think of as really your core like engineering folks. So like materials, corrosion, uh, doing like mishap analysis. You know, we've got an electron microscope in there. We dabble in. Uh, risk assessment for uh, added manufacturing. So that's kind of when you think of your real like technical engineering group, uh, they're going to be within your uh, air and sustainment branch. Uh, we also have an electrical group that, uh, that runs uh, the equipment on the product lines that you guys probably saw to verify that all the circuits uh, on the aircraft are working properly before they get, you know, assembled and, and start ground runs. Um, we also Which have was crazy. I think that was, that was one of the weird things we saw. Yeah. So you see like- Yeah, we didn't talk about that at all. You didn't talk no, about there's empty yeah. aircraft and then there's just hundreds of feet of wires and stuff everywhere and they put the wires on it and then they hook it up to this machine and it verifies that they did everything correctly. It looks like something out of the future. It does. Yeah. Like but some it's foreign spaceship technology probably. But it's just the opposite though. It's the yeah. drive-in theater maintenance company, Dipmaco. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's actually archaic technology that's been adapted to- uh, It's a good um, pivot by them. Uh, it is. Uh, it's it's great, um, great system. And that really uh, makes sure that most of the systems are up and running before, uh, before the aircraft really get assembled and we- it would be much harder to access those areas. So that program is basically centralized within ESD, and obviously on the product lines is where they're operating that equipment as well. Was there a point in ALC's history where they're like, hey, we have all these different shops that do all these different things. Let's just combine them under one. I feel like you are just throwing out so many different things that are maybe not related or related that just, hey, they don't really fall under the, the hangar deck. They don't really fall under like, hey, we're turning wrenches on a on a transmission or something like that, let's throw them, let's throw them at ESD. You know, I, I think there's some folks here that could probably speak better to the history, but, uh, but yeah, essentially everything that, uh, that doesn't belong in the product line and maybe doesn't necessarily need to live within a, you know, a single, um, air asset, uh, I think it naturally kind of falls under engineering services division. Yeah. Um, uh, we've been growing that. So, you know, I, I think the other important piece to talk about what ESD does is is we're kind of the, the central airworthiness office. So um, I'm sure you guys talked a little bit about your tour uh, during your tour that, uh, you know, we self-certify aircraft. And that airworthiness authority really comes down from our, you know, headquarters office, chief of engineering for the Coast Guard to chief of aviation engineering down to engineering service division through the ESD chief and to the product lines for there. So... 
Uh, when we're making airworthiness decisions, uh, you know, generally uh, that's being done in conjunction with engineering services division. Uh, certainly the product lines are making decisions, uh, but when it comes to configuration changes and um, um, modifications to an aircraft or changing uh, a, a material, um, that's when we really get involved with the, uh, uh, the airworthiness sustainment branch and get into some of the analysis uh, necessary to make those decisions. When you're yeah. talking about the like technical engineering part, how much of it is um, reactive versus like proactive, like looking into the future of things that might be coming down? Um, where would you say you guys are on that? It's a, it's a pretty good mix right now. So I, I'll give you an example. Um, Atom manufacturing, which is basically making something out of you know, 3D printing is added manufacturing. So instead of taking a block of metal and cutting it into a shape that you need to, you start with maybe a string of filament, uh, which may be plastic or, or metal, and you make it, you make it into something that you need uh, that generally wouldn't need to be machined. So uh, that uh, added manufacturing also includes uh, cold spray. And cold spray is a way of actually depositing metal onto maybe an area uh, that, uh, that is corroded or damaged in some way. And that is really, um, that is a technology that a lot of folks are researching to try to save, uh, save cost. Um, maybe you can re repair something instead of replace it. Uh, and we are working with uh, a number of uh, uh, teams from academia uh, within the DOD uh, and within, uh, within the Coast Guard, including other um, logistics centers uh, to try to really figure out how do we employ this technology um, to enhance our programs. So that's one place that we're looking forward. Uh, but we're also very reactionary because our- hey, Before you, uh, so yeah, we got to walk around and you guys showed us some some 3D printers that you guys have here. And that's crazy. And I think for some people, um, you hear about like, oh, ALC is doing, they're doing what? They're like they're creating parts for our aircraft. And a lot of people instantly think um, that, that we're taking shortcuts or that we're, we're doing this to save money and- um, yeah, just speaking with some of the the technical people that you have working there, it's like, you know, like this is this is the future, um, and it sounds like you guys are you know on the cutting edge of that, and um, it's going to get to the point where yeah, you don't have thousands of parts sitting in some warehouse, whether it's whatever OEM that is, and it sounds like we're getting to the point um, the next couple of years where it's going to be like, hey, we need this part, and Airbus will be like, cool, you guys are already certified with based off of what we've seen you are authorized to print that part and boom, they, we already probably have the file and you just say click print and five hours later or 20 hours later, however long that thing takes. And here's the new part. And that's crazy to me. Yeah. yeah. But, but super cool at the same time. Right. Yes. I mean, that's where everybody wants to get to. I mean, right now they're low criticality parts, so we're not going to be 3d printing a turbine blade anytime soon. Right. Um, right. But uh, I mean, one of the, the, cool examples that's out there is uh, there's a hoist pendant, I think, down in, in Mobile mm -hmm. uh, that uh, may have just wrapped up uh, testing. Uh, but it was it was some ridiculous sum of money to have that uh, um, basically injection molded. And uh, we were running out. So uh, working with IOD and uh, engineering services, uh, they, they, they were able to reverse engineer one, 3D print it, and uh, produce it for a fraction of the cost. And uh, I think we broke the first one. I think it got dropped and it, it and it broke and we improved upon that model and uh, and I think the I think they're probably ready to to potentially make it a part that you could order. Yeah. Uh, I think what, what's the number we're up to thirty or it's 40, around thirty. Yeah, it's around thirty um, yeah. parts that you can actually order from ALC. 
Uh, so IOD is doing all the printing there, but when it comes uh, time to uh, weighing the criticality of creating that part um, instead of purchasing it, you know, in its original form, that's where engineering services gets yeah. uh, gets involved. That's I awesome. think that's a good segue uh, into your job, Commander Gore, because um, <clears throat> you can explain what IOD is, but the way I see it is like, hey, you. I feel like a grease monkey when I walk through with your tour, right? <laughs> this is where like actually hands-on, we're turning wrenches, like these, all these different parts of the aircraft come off and uh, we're rebuilding or, or refurbing them. So what exactly does IOD do for ALC and for the fleet? Yeah, I mean, so it's funny. I was thinking about that leading up to this, like what, how do I explain this in a way that makes sense, right? And so- uh, it's the industrial support for, for, you know, depot maintenance. And it's like, well, that doesn't mean anything to anyone. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, so if you have work though, that is common to all your airframes, right. Then, uh, it would make sense to kind of centralize that in one place, especially if that work requires some level of skill, uh, in which case almost all this does, right. We're talking about precision machining, mm-hmm. um, even, even painting all these things. It's very easy to be like, Oh, you just paint. Like, no, this is painting aircraft is not a simple task. Um, and so that's all housed in IOD. So we, we provide, uh, so if a product line takes a part, of, uh, uh, a plane and disassembly, and then a part comes to IOD, uh, for overhaul, we're going to do the inspections on it. And then we're going to do the necessary work with it, which might include, uh, blasting and stripping it, then machining it down, uh, possibly, uh, re, uh, refurbishing parts of it, maybe manufacturing something that needs to, that's missing some com- other subcomponent of it. Uh, and then reassembling it, and then it gets delivered back to the product line to get put back on the pro- uh, onto the final aircraft. What parts kind are we kind of ta- talking about here? So, I mean, this is everything trans- from all the transmissions for the rotary side, um, including the gearbo- tail gearboxes. Uh, yep. You've got engines for both uh, MRS, so the, the 144 and the 60 and the 65, the APUs for the 65, or 60, sorry. And then um, uh, you have... Um, both the rotary platforms get fully painted. Some of the fixed wing painting, we don't have a paint booth big enough to put obviously the whole hole in there. So yeah. um, it's mostly component stuff there. Um, and uh, I mean, I, like, I won't deny, like I haven't asked you what your favorite part of this whole tour has been, but for me, it's been every shop that you've taken us into because <laughs> you guys have like, I mean, you really break everything down and you also, I think you have the coolest toys. Um, the CNC machines that you have yeah. that actually you know, mill out the inside of gearbox housings and you're like, the tolerance isn't right. We need, this is scrapped or, Hey, we can get this corrosion down and Hey, we can reuse this housing. It, it works just fine. We'll replace the, I don't know what aluminum bearing. I'm just throwing words out here that don't make any sense. That but, sounds good. Okay, no, cool. Good. Got it. And, uh, you know, and then you've got you know, all sorts of tests. Like you so, showed us the uh, engine test cells. Yeah. I had no idea that ALC actually could throw a, an engine in there and have a test cell and run the thing up and, and like, hey, this works great or this doesn't work great. And then the 3D printing that Kenny was alluding to is just, it's crazy. I mean, we, we talked a bit about it and I'd love to dive into it, right? The normal, pro- what is what has been the normal historical process for we need this part? Like, what do, you, what do we usually do? Uh, I mean, so right, if a, a, so you need a requisition apart, then at which point you, you're going to try to pull something from supply, but let's assume it doesn't exist, doesn't let's it. say, right? Yeah. So then you might try to go to make an order and then that's where you're going to be faced with your first real decision, right? That's where you get into a make versus buy. So because they might come back with either something cost prohibitive mm-hmm. uh, or what's probably more likely is time is going to be the issue, right? We don't we don't run a huge fleet. We don't have spare aircraft laying around. Yeah. So I can't deal with a, a 300, 400, 500 day lead time. That's a year and a half, right? Do you ever think uh, that the company is trying to call your bluff? 
like, hey, let me just give enough lead time here where the Coast Guard's going to be like, we can't accept that. We're going to have to figure something else out. There's probably the chance of that. I mean, ultimately, they're a business, right? They, yeah. They, and to build something, if we're asking for just one of something, that might require an extensive amount of building up a machine to do it or retooling something, and, and in which case they're not making their parts that might be selling for way more money. And so they're looking at that, and they're making oh, yeah. a business case, and they might say, well, yeah, we can do it, but we need 700 days because we want to print whatever, 1500 of this other part or, or, you know, cut 1500 of this other part, that's going to make more money for us. And that, and that's, that makes sense. That's the business decision they should be making, right. As a for-profit organization. So, yeah. um, so there might be a little bit of like, well, we'll just throw out a number that's untenable really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the problem sol- will solve itself. It might, there might be, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's always trying like, to make money. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't, you can't blame them. Right. That's what they're there for. But and generally the low quantity that we may order in some parts, I think makes it, uh, untenable for, for a lot of the vendors and like, it's not worth it. Yeah. So the traditional aspect is like, Hey, you know, we need this new part, but, uh, looking at the 3d printers, like what is, what do you think is the future of, of parts that you could see? I mean, like, I guess futures obviously relative because we got all all time kinds of time. But I mean, where Ryan said it, where the industry wants to go is right. I mean, additive manufacturing, right? It's a subtractive process. Traditional manufacturing takes a piece of metal, cuts it down. You have a, you're left with a lot of waste there, right. and you're limited to the capabilities of machine. An additive part uh, one has less waste because it uses the material it needs to make it, and then two uh, can help you accomplish shapes. Uh, that you can't otherwise accomplish. And that that could lead to weight reductions, better cooling, um, and just uh, strength in different ways because geometry matters for that sort of stuff. So they, they, they would want to go more and more that way. Additionally, you guys kind of saw on the tour, right? We, we showed you f- like form blocks that you need to use in order to bend metal. Mm-hmm. Well, you got out in industry, right? They, they have warehouses full of form blocks that most of the time they're not even necessarily sure where that is. So mm-hmm. if, if, if they need to make that part, then they got to figure out where that form block was. Well, things like 3D printing, now let's throw all those away. Let's get rid of warehouses of tools. That's what a form block essentially is, right? Yeah. We get rid of all of it. We just turn it into a database of files. And if I need to print and bend this one piece of metal to this very specific spec, well, then I print a new form block. I could do it anywhere, point of service basically. Uh, and then I can bend the metal right there. So that, that's, I think that's probably the more near term is I think they recognize the ability uh, in industry to 3D print, uh, especially the tooling element of it so that they can really reduce a lot of their um, storage requirements yeah. for, for that stuff. So like the OEM actually develops the specific software or not the software, but the drawings or whatever that goes into you know printing that part. And then we say, hey, we need that. And they're like, okay. Here you go. Here's the printed option. Pay us, pay us money. Now you guys can go ahead and print it yourself. And yeah, potentially. I mean, I think that's the part that still is like, yeah, how, who, how do you pay or how do you make money with that kind of data? So is that included as um, a part of a purchase of an aircraft yeah. or or is or a part whatever subscription the case might be. fee? Right. Yeah. And there's like some that. of that. There's um, you know that. that I don't know if you've heard of like PBL type stuff, but there is that idea. Like you buy an aircraft, it's supported by the OEM and that includes that kind of stuff. Right. And you are, there's an ongoing sort of service fee for it. Um, and there are like some of the aircraft in the DOD are under those kinds of agreements. Um, I mean, we have some, some of those in the Coast Guard even. So like the C-130J has a little bit of that and stuff like that. But yeah, I think you see some slow adoption of, uh, of, the ability to certify a part, so for a vendor to actually uh, have a, an OEM part, an o, a 
uh, that's 3D printed right. to certify a high criticality part is uh, is pretty challenging right now. So I think that's what uh, what a lot of the researchers are working on right now. But the other thing we use a lot for atom manufacturing is uh, is to make tooling uh, and also to uh, to create some prototypes. So yeah, uh, you know uh, the 65 they're working on that Link 16 antenna, which is also going to be for your automatic asset tracking system as well. Uh, we made several different models of the bracket that was going to attach to the canopy uh, to mount that antenna to. Um, and that they were able to test multiple different um, brackets before they finally decided on which one would work. And then they can have that go manufactured by by a vendor because they've essentially already done a form fit function. Mm-hmm. And now they just want somebody to go make it out of aluminum. And so it's it saves us a lot of uh, non-reoccurring engineering fees with a vendor where they can essentially be um, confident in a design, yeah. give it to somebody to make, and it's just easy. It's just super easy. Yeah. Yeah. So they use a lot for um, for reverse engineering, prototyping, things like that. Even if it's not going to be a, a part that's uh, always going to be you know attached to the aircraft. Yeah, I don't know about you. Had you ever heard of additive manufacturing before today? I uh, had. I had not heard of the term additive. I knew things were starting to get three D printed. So like, and so just for super dumb me over here, uh, like additive means you are like injection molding are you pouring the or, or are you like still shaving down a giant block of metal or plastic or whatever in that 3d planner no i mean i think at its most basic that's the difference between the two right additive is is starting with nothing um and then f- making your final shape uh, right there at the point right and okay and versus subtractive is to take some sort of block of raw material and cut it all and reduce it okay um, and that's kind of the two uh I mean, there's there's blending of the two now. It's crazy. That's where industry is going in some spots. But in general, that's the two types of major manufacturing. And then inside of that, and sometimes subtractive is also more often referred to as traditional. Yeah. Uh, mean, you know, man, manufacturing. And and Ryan talked about like cold spray is another. It lives in the realm of additive manufacturing as well. So again, you're you're building something up, um, and it's kind of interesting because you could almost it's that one's a little more again, it's different, uh, but. That one, you're you're spraying metal particles basically onto a surface, and it's adhering via the because the speed is such, it's adhering to the substrate, you know, the surface that you hit, um, and it's really interesting. It's like a, I honestly think like Bondo for your car, yeah, like it's that, but you're doing it with like metal. a metal spray gun, <laughs> and yeah. it's laying down a new layer of metal instead of this layer of whatever Bondo is, yeah, you know, analogy. So I think of like a leading edge. So you've got a leading edge of a fixed wing aircraft that's got some corrosion on it. It's not quite beyond limits, but uh, if it were to remain in service and were to corrode further, mm-hmm. it would probably require replacement. Well, if you go ahead and spray that metal back on there, blend it, um, that that metal is basically returned. So if it corrodes beyond that, well, you could actually go back and add more metal to it instead of, uh, and it could it could remain in service for an extended period of time. So we've had some pretty cool projects that we've worked uh, together with uh with uh, MRS, with the uh, 144, C27, uh, IOD, and, and ESD um, t- to really try to pave a path to really try to use that uh, as, a, as a tool going forward. Um, you could even imagine it used on, on a gearbox at some point. Yeah. Um, so yeah. There, there's some pretty cool research being done there. We've got a lot of uh, working groups with uh, Academia, DOD. Uh, we've gone to a couple conferences as well that talk about it. So that's, that's one of the areas we're really trying to bring some cool technology to ALC to really... Uh, help keep them flying. Yeah, yeah the Navy's up. pretty aggressive at it. And so we even just like last week, we just sent a team up to up to Chesapeake just an hour away as uh, 
a cold spray facility that the Navy's, they call them pop-up facilities since the Navy has one up there and we just went and did a tour of it and trying to understand how we could maybe better uh, establish a relationship there and, and potentially look to like send uh, parts up there. Yeah, or? that would be, that would be the, where we'd want to go. We've done some stuff with both the air force and the Navy, some cold spray prototyping. Um, so they both, uh, um, I said, did I say the air force? I can't remember. Anyways, yeah, they yeah, both, force, uh, yeah. they both do that um, at different facilities. So it's, it's uh, that's all different ways of the future, I guess, kind of there. So yeah. How does that tie into like standardization of, is, is it the exact same machine that's doing it at Pax River or San Diego or wherever? And like, how do you know, like, okay, yeah, we, we cold sprayed that thing. It's good for X amount of flight hours. How does that come into this? Well, that's where it gets really tricky. Yeah. Now, yeah. You're, getting, now yeah. you're getting into the heart of it. Okay. Yeah. 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 So if you were to take the simplest example, I've got a leading edge, uh, it's corroded. Uh, and if I were to just blend that corrosion, I could put it back in service. So at this point, I'm not beyond limits. If that missing that missing metal is is okay, so if I add metal to that, as long as I'm not affecting the structure, um, I'm essentially just replacing that metal. So if it corrodes further, I'm not beyond limits, and I'm yeah. relying on the the uh, the remaining metal that was originally there after it corroded mm -hmm. to carry the load. Mm -hmm. So that's an easy button. You know, it's it's much simpler to approve a repair like that. Then when you get into something that it's uh, corroded beyond limits. So now you're relying on that cold spray repair to actually carry a load. And, and th that's when you start getting into the specifications. How do you uh, validate, um, you know, that you've got correct bonding? Um, you know, how do you uh, use non-destructive inspection to verify that uh, there's no porosity, uh, that there's no cracks there. Uh, we ran into an issue where we couldn't really identify a go, no go criteria for a cold spray uh, repair uh, using some of our traditional NDI methods. So uh, that's where it gets really complicated. Yeah. And that's, that's some of the future work that we're, uh, that we're, you know, focusing on to try. Yeah. To even at the most basic level, like, okay, you do this cold spray, like how much weight did you add to that wing, you know, way out at the tip of a, you know, an aircraft? Like how much is too much before they're like, yeah, well, we didn't design that wing to hold that much weight. You know, like it's crazy to think yeah. about. It should be re basically returned to its original shape and right. size. So it, it yeah. should essentially be exact same uh, dimensions and, and weights. Um, but even choosing the the material you spray, I mean, uh, if you're doing an aluminum repair on, on a 2000 series, uh, what what metal alloy do you apply to it? And right. there's different reasons to select different materials yeah. uh, for either strength or corrosion resistance. So that that's when our engineers really, really make their money. And yeah, that's, that's cool. That's some of the fun projects we get involved in. Yeah, in yeah that's cool. Do you guys have a wind tunnel here? No. I figured <laughs> no, that. No. I figured we would have seen that on the tour. <laughs> uh, uh, me and Sam could have hung out in the wind tunnel for a little bit. Long yeah. Yeah, dude. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. It's like skydiving. A wingsuit. Wingsuit. Uh, I want to jump into a little bit. Uh, I mean, we talked to the uh, predominantly the SRR uh, guys about transmissions, especially in the uh, uh, 65, but it, it you guys completely rehab, uh, refurb these transmissions. Um, and not only do you do that, but you have a workforce that is uh, well qualified. And, and one of the big eye-opening things for me was to go in there and see all the training certifications on the wall that they get from Airbus. And they actually, you know, do that, what do they do it on an annual basis or? 
Yeah, it's every uh, two to three years that Airbus will come out and provide training, and we we get guys that get different certifications, basically depending on the components. Yeah, so I mean, like, what what would you say to a fleet aviator who is is like, oh, you know, we got a gearbox that keeps chipping out, or like people say we don't have gearboxes enough. Um, Are we at a point in our fleet where we have enough gearboxes to support our fleet operations, and how is that process for rebuilding those gearboxes? Well, I think certainly Ryan and obviously probably JR could speak to it the best because uh, they're going to know the health of their own supply chain. Right. Um, but uh, obviously you just got your flight hours returned to you. So I think that tells you that we're, we're going in a direction that we want to be, right? Um, and that's a that's a myriad of efforts that go into it. So IOD's role was just one. Um, and, and a big piece of it was it, certainly a, the role or the big piece of IOD's role there is the gearbox housing, right? The project that those guys work on where they – um, through, and this is a collaborative effort with SRR and Airbus, um, where essentially we evaluate all these gearbox housings, uh, that have maybe some level of corrosion. Um, and we determine whether that corrosion is in or out of limits, just like Ryan was talking about. Uh, and then if it's, we think maybe within limits, then we start working on to see if we can remove it. And once we're done removing it, we got to measure again and see if it's still in or out of limits. Cause you can't, Right, you have to have enough structure left there to keep uh, beyond that safety margin you guys were talking about earlier, right? Um, yeah. And so uh, that's kind of an example of one element of of or one path that ALC was pursuing to help solve that gearbox project um, or problem, I should say, not project. That was the project, but uh, that's one avenue on top of well, okay, where can we make where can we procure some more of these, right? Or like, hey, is there other operators in the world? These are all the different things that get explored across the ALC enterprise. Uh, sometimes at at the product line with the the item managers, right? Every everything on your aircraft has somebody, a civilian here that's essentially in charge of making sure that we have enough of these things, and they're seeking all kinds of sources. And then in the same token, they might when they recognize they're going to have a problem, then that comes up with the shortage and we're like, well, is there an engineering solution? Can we, can we make it ourselves? Right? Like, mm-hmm. and if so, like when you're talking to Cam Wilson, uh, if so, should we, um, how are we going to make it right? How are we going to ensure that we're making it to the same standard that it was certified for, uh, by whatever certifying agency, you know, qualified the part to begin with, be it the FAA or in some cases with, with the 65, you know, it's, it's EASA or, or, and, um, which is the, you know, the European FAA basically. And so, right. um, and so those are all the questions we ask. And then we put all these systems in place. And so part of that is like, okay, let's get, how do we keep all our guys all certified? How do we, how do we go to the, to the fleet and say, we're making parts and we want it to be done uh, to the same standard that we know the OEMs, OEMs the equipment it. manufacturers are doing, right? Well, right. We, we get their certifications, right? We hold ourselves to the same standards. Um, it's no, you guys are stand pilots. I was, I was, I was, that's the analogy earlier, right? So we do these AE stand visits, what used to be LCIs, where we go out and check the fleet maintenance programs to make sure that it's it's doing the right thing. Well, we we got to hold ourselves to some sort of standard too. So we invite, we pay an outside, we pay outside entities to come look at us and check our processes and hold ourselves up to this uh, standard. And that comes through Airbus or we have various ISO audits, right? And so we have all these certifications that basically say, hey, you have processes uh, that are in place and you guys follow your processes and they meet the basic tenets of what it should be required for various aviation related yeah. uh, overhaul and depot depot maintenance type things. I mean, as a federal uh, agency though, we aren't required to get that certification, right? So no, that we, no. that's something that the Coast Guard seeks out just to be, you know, not that it's a, you know, a feather in your hat or anything like that, but it's something that tells 
uh, the end user, the operator, like, Hey, you know, we have gone through the OEM manufacturer, like this is, we've done their training and uh, we didn't need to, but this gives us, you know, it's obviously better training for your guys that are working for you, but it also gives us a warm and fuzzy. I don't know about you, Kenny. Yeah. I think commander people might've been you said something like, um, we do what we say and we say, say what we do and do what we say or something like that. That's it, the it, simplest way to describe some yeah. of those certifications. And we have a process for everything and we follow our processes. And if we identify discrepancies or ways that we could improve upon it, we have a continuous process improvement, um, process in place um, for which to... Engineers love that word, processes. Uh, problem. <laughs> Improvement. Yeah, if I hear Cat Wilson say processy one more time, I'm going <laughs> to I feel like that's so much what lunch. aeronautical engineering is, right? It's, it's, <laughs> we're What's process, process managing, honestly. <laughs> that's so much of it. Yeah. But it gives us the confidence to tell you that we have an, an airworthy part, that we have an airworthy aircraft uh, because it, it, it's a good check and balance when we get those external auditors, whether it's, you know, Airbus for a specific Airbus part or, you know, Sikorsky or any of the, uh, you know, manufacturers coming in and actually looking at our, our repair and overhaul activities, or, you know, we uh, get an international standard uh, assigned that is routinely uh, revisited. And uh, we, we had a handful of discrepancies that we attacked uh, uh, last year, and, and we're always happy to continue to, to make improvements on our, on our program. Yeah. I, I kind of want to dive into the, the airworthiness and uh, the self-certification that, that we do is that is all the self-certifying does that come from you here at ALC? So, tech warrant authority is is one way to to kind of talk about how we self-certify. So, uh, we derive our technical authority from uh, from CG four from Admiral List, um, and that goes through the Office of Aviation Engineering. Uh, CG41, down through engineering services, and then to each of the product line engineers from there. So they are the tech warrant holders. Okay. I'm the tech airworthiness authority, uh, and then up up the chain from there. So that is really the, uh, the chain for which to make technical decisions, airworthiness decisions for our aircraft. Um, and those, those exist also, like it's, it's more than just a product line though. Like, so you, you have the technical warrant holder for an airframe, Correct. but we also have technical warrant holder for wiring or okay. materials and materials. Yeah. And Avionics, uh, support equipment. I, I think, I think that's kind of where my question comes from. Cause like, you know, just think I'm a 65 Delta pilot and we're TSO C145A is what our dash one says. And I only have this written down cause I teach the IFR lecture in Mobile and if you actually read into um, like the FAAs for C-145, that's like a WAS-enabled aircraft, right? And a 65 Delta, everybody knows you can't shoot any GPS approaches. In right. addition to WAS-enabled, like you, there's no way you can shoot LPVs. The only yeah. one, like no helicopter that we have shoots that. So in that process, do you guys just look for what is the most similar in an FAA certification and say, this is what we want? Or is it something like we need to do this mission so this certification with the equipment that we have is what's going to work best for us when we go out and do said mission? Or am I completely off base here? I'm, no, no, I was just curious. So every platform is a little bit different. So um, because we fly a mix of really military aircraft, such as the you know, H-60, um, and commercial variants, such as the 144, or even the 65, uh, the airworthiness basis uh, differs from airframe to airframe. So something could have initially been certified uh, under an FAA type rating, uh, for which we maybe have modified it a little bit so we can get confidence that, okay, 
in this configuration, it was approved uh, by the FAA. We're going to change a couple things to missionize this aircraft, and that's really where we want to focus our risk assessment, determine whether or not we have modified it to a point where that aircraft uh, is unsafe or if uh, maintenance intervals need to be changed or special inspections need to occur. And that's what we we do as a Coast Guard. Uh, but there are other ways to, to really look at that um, you know, with, with the H-60, maybe you can comment on, on, on that, Sean, just as a driver. I mean, there, there's no civilian variant of the H-60, so we really derive all of the inspection requirements and the, uh, the airworthiness recommendations from, from, the, from the OEM on that one. Yeah, and then obviously they have a heavy, I mean, MRR has a heavy partnership with the Navy and the Army. I mean, they, when you go over and ask those guys questions, they all have uh, reps from those various services because, again, those are the two biggest operators really in, in – in our, at least in our country, right? Probably mm-hmm. the world. I don't know that definitively, but I would imagine so. Um, and so they they get to leverage those professional relationships because those guys are major stakeholders for Sikorsky. So they obviously have a pretty unique relationship and there's a lot of incentive aligned to help those two entities out. And so, right. um, so that is one of the big differences, especially when you talk about internal to our product lines, right? You got like the LRS, the C-130 is a massively supported platform again within the DOD and then the 60, same deal. So they get to leverage these DOD partnerships, which is completely different from you guys who fly 65s, right? We're the big operator of this aircraft in the world. Uh, And so we really have that totally different relationship with the OEM. We pay attention to who else is flying it, but no one's flying as many as the Coast Guard is, right? Yeah. Uh, And then, and then same thing for the 144 and the, and the C-27, uh, where they're foreign vendors uh, originally, right? They, and so uh, changed your certification path and then uh, you don't have the same DOD backing. So it is a totally, each of those have their own nuance to how do we get to airworthy. Um, and and we rely heavily on, I think, uh, lessons and learned from the DOD in terms of they have, you know, robust uh processes so oh, that's for you right there so, no, so they have all kinds of <laughs> so, many so they processes. have all kinds of different things and so you'll look at those and there's uh these military handbooks that you can pull that are kind of guide all the services and what sort of things should you look at when you're trying to determine if something's airworthy and then uh, in some cases we partner you know with, with uh, we look even at the fa how do they determine right i mean fa certifies aircraft and so right uh, yeah. you can go right on to you know like the fa's website and start digging into if you get into aircraft certification, there's a ton of info. It's going to point you to the FARs, and then it's going to point you to a bunch of FAA uh, handbooks and circulars, and you start kind of pulling all those together to look at, like, well, how does the FAA tell Boeing they can fly the 737, right? Like, right. And that process they, is written They tell out. them that, though. Yeah, and well, they tell them that. And so that's to some – right, we have to tell ourselves that. Exactly. And so that's why we kind yeah. of – we look at what is their process okay. and how do we – insert that type of process into what we do here. And that's why someone like engineering service exists and why we have a technical, a materials technical warrant holder who doesn't work on a product line, right? He works for and with Ryan. And so when something we have questions arise, then he needs to look at it and you create this sort of intersection where two different people are looking at stuff. It's that kind of two person integrity. And then ultimately maybe Ryan still needs to look at it. And then after Ryan looks at it, it's still got to get looked at by, the tri P or the quad P up in headquarters, right? I mean, you have these layers of oversight that you put in that uh, create the same kind of oversight that you would have uh, with say, again, we're using the FAA there in that process. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's the best uh, analogy, like, cause we are comparing ourselves to the FAA when we self-certify, but do you feel like you have the requisite knowledge and or training to say, I mean, it's a, it's a ton of responsibility. Like I, I don't have to make that decision, but it's like, 
yes, this is the way that we're going to operate. This is I certify this aircraft for this, whatever it might be, in, in airworthiness standpoint. So none of these decisions are made in a vacuum. I think that's one of the important things. There's no single point of failure for any airworthiness decision that's made uh, on any of our platforms in the Coast Guard. Right. If we don't have the requisite uh, bench strength to uh, to acquire our own data or analyze our own data to be able to make an educated decision, um, you know that's when we really leverage our, our partnerships with other services, uh, our partnerships with the National Airworthiness. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's really like... I- I think it's ever since I, you know, read self-certified, I was like, man, who does that? Like, and the responsibility that you guys have for that uh, is what is really in- intriguing or interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I, I think you're not wrong in that it does, th- there should be a little bit of like a dauntingness to that, right? Like that's not a small thing. It's not a small no, thing. It's not small. Um, so. And so we, we want to put things in place that, uh, make it so that you can't have a single point of failure. So that's why we have so many different layers in the decision-making. It's it's nuanced, right? Airworthiness, yeah. I don't think I had an appreciation for the nuance involved in, in airworthiness until I got to ALC and yeah. saw, right? Like, it sounds simple. You asked some questions on the tour of like, hey, are we going to swap out the, are we going to swap out the sand casted gearbox for an aluminum one? Right. And, and, and the answer kind of quickly was like, no. And it's like, because the amount of work that would go into getting that certified airworthy, the amount of engineering, uh, and that's between the testing and then the evaluation, the math, all that, that would go into it would be, it, it's, it's not only is it cost prohibitive, uh, but it might not even, we might not even really have the time. I mean, the amount of time it goes into some of these things is forever. Uh, I mean, and you got a chance to talk to uh, MRS, right? And they're working through getting that C-27 missionized, right? And a big piece of that is... is you know making sure that aircraft's airworthiness, and we're we're partnered with Nav Air for that for this one, right? So we kind of talked about all these different sources of airworthiness and how we get there. In this case, we're we're using Nav Air uh, to work on that, and Nav Air is using their their uh, airworthiness system and their processes. Sorry, I had to say it there, but um, <laughs> I'm going to start drinking every time. So, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Processes, uh, so. <laughs> but I think it speaks to how challenging airworthiness is and it's easy to just be like oh let's just strap something on the aircraft and it's just not good to go you can't do that i mean you just really can't and it's much easier to make the decision when you have the data you know i think so i don't know if uh if the 144 uh folks told you about their uh their midlife inspection interval because that's actually one of the one of the more interesting examples that we uh of some of the teamwork between the product line and esd we have is uh you know they they acquired a ton of data just flying a 144 at all of the operational units and getting load and uh, data from uh, from critical areas of the aircraft uh, and looked at how we're operating our aircraft. It's and way different than what they intended. It's at way different because this for, is a right? deep water aircraft. The in terms of how often we fly that aircraft and the way that we're using it is way different than it was originally designed. So they took all that data and they uh, they delivered it to the OEM and they came back with a service life limit that uh, essentially would have put the aircraft either already beyond its midlife. It's like, yeah. I, I forget the numbers, uh, but uh, but it, it may, maybe cut it in half, uh, you know, and, and I'm not exaggerating. Wow. Um, so we really had to go back to the table and working together, we had to figure out, okay, well, um, 
let's look at how we're actually operating this aircraft and mm -hmm. let's uh, let's do some real engineering analysis and figure out uh, what an appropriate midlife inspection would be. And they were able to return an enormous amount of service life back to that aircraft um, and, and doing it ourselves. And that's really what we want to try to get to is, is to have a little bit more of that in-house capacity. Uh, that was contracted out to a third party. Um, but getting back to how we make airworthiness decisions, we do really do rely on our service partners. We rely on external entities when we don't have the data or we don't have the, uh, the ability yes. to do it, uh, in house. Um, I think partnering with, uh, with our, with other services, um, with academia even, yeah. uh, is really what allows us to have the bench strength that we need to, uh, to, to answer those hard questions of, of, is this airworthy? And I think... One of the things I've learned coming here is that that it's not black and white. Yeah. Um, you know, the safest thing to do is probably not to go flying. Um, and we- It, it always is. Right. Yeah. So the, we work very, very hard to, uh, to minimize the risk of, of every component failure, uh, to make sure that the redundancies are in place. And we really understand the failure mechanism, the inspection intervals, and everything that goes in every component on your aircraft. Um, but- uh, but oftentimes when we find some challenges there, it's, uh, it's, it's not black and white. It's not black and white. Do you think that uh, the Coast Guard and the, specifically the Coast Guard Aviation Engineering Program prepared either of you for making those kind of decisions when you got here? So I'll speak to my experience going through two years at, uh, at Purdue. Uh, and I would say, unfortunately, no. Uh, that program is... Uh, what that program does do, however, is train me to ask the right questions. Okay. So I know enough with my master's degree there uh, that I can be, uh, I can review some sort of an engineering um, investigation or some sort of fatigue analysis, and I can I can have sufficient background to make sure that I'm asking the right questions to make sure that uh, that we're getting um, the right data, the right recommendations. Uh, and that the Coast Guard's best interests are upheld. Yeah. Um, but uh, one area what I would really like to see us improve our education on is really in that certification realm. Yeah. Uh, so we actually recently assisted in producing a standard for training airworthiness certification uh, professionals, um, and that is a, an, a, a curriculum standard uh, that is really, I think, very, very new. So it's, it's not something that... Uh, that we are necessarily exposed to, uh, and I think we could probably do a better job of really um, training the folks that come to ALC on, on what it really means to to certify an aircraft. Yeah, and we do have, I mean, so in, in that same vein, so within ESD, the airworthiness sustainment branch has, we, I mean, I told you, so, okay, we got a materials engineer, we got a couple of mechanical engineers. One of the persons over there is an airworthiness engineer. Right. I yes. mean, and that is, I mean, that, that is their wheelhouse. I mean, and so when you find yourself sort of at this crossroads of like, how do can I get here? Right. Can I get to airworthy on this? Like, uh, he's a pretty invaluable resource for that. And he's yeah. super plugged in with both academia and, um, and the industry. So, uh, he can help at least kind of roadmap. Well, how do we get there? And then, and then in, there's a process engineer. I hate, sorry process, to say that. That's the thing. Yeah. So, drink. Everybody drink. Uh, all right. Drink. All right. Yeah. And process. So, <laughs> so at any rate, he, uh, you know, they, they can help to really outline, well, here's the path, right. And here's the, the, the things you got to get done to get there um, or to get to airworthiness in this case. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, and then that, that can exist in terms of with the product line that exists with IOD sometimes. Um, and that's happening kind of all across the board uh, and throughout 
ALC uh, as far as the the airworthiness piece. And it's always kind of this push pull that's existing uh, all the, you know, all the time and all these decisions. And so, um, and none of them, like you saying, you, there's very few decisions. There's none actually I can think of where you're like able to just make the decision to do something like that. It all requires, and a piece of that when you're, well, I, while I came here, yes. And you're sort of, like told you, I used the word daunting, uh, because you're staring at the face of like, Oh my, like I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not qualified to make this decision. Right. So the big piece was, I think recognizing that, okay, I'm, I'm not qualified, but it, it falls to me. Okay, cool. Let's accept my role. And then, well, how do I get to where I can put my signature on something? Uh, and, ex- and I'm willing to accept that. And that comes from asking these questions and, uh, doing a lot of reading and, and yeah. researching and, um, not to mention like leaning on the workforce that is huge. Here I mean, the workforce right? here is, is insane. I mean, it's, you are, you guys are hit on it. It's 1800 people. There's very few of us that are in the military. IOD specifically has three people in the military. There's 220 people basically in IOD. So the rest of them are all civilians and they're all exceptionally smart and they're all incredibly professional and they love what they do and yeah. they want to do it the right way and they want to get it done. And we, we, were, we were talking to Tom today in the transmission shop and he has been a civil servant for 42 years. Yeah. Wow. And I think he said he started at uh, ATC, or not ATC, sorry guys, ALC at what, like... 2000, early 2000s or? Yeah, early 2000s. ARC, like and then what other aircraft? Yeah, ARC. Did it, right? He said he had worked on F-14s. F-14s, and F-18s. Yeah. Like that kind of person knows the process and knows how process. to like run. So you're a process. Oh, you did it. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't I did, I'm not even an engineer. You've been hanging out with engineers. I know. Too I've much, been talking dude. too much engineering. But, I mean, that's the, that's the thing though, right? Like uh, you can yeah. rely on somebody like that who's running the shop and you're like, yeah, Tom's got it. You know, Tom, and tell I, me I what you need. A lot of the people we've talked to have been like, yeah, I've been at least touching aircraft parts for 15 years, 20 years, you know, and it may not just be Coast Guard, but like been involved in aviation and have looked at gearboxes and like can probably look right away and be like, yeah, that's not going to pass. They're like, well, how do you know? You're like, just trust me. But here, you can go ahead and do do your hair ESD, like do your thing. And you're like, yeah, it's not good to go. Like, yeah, you know. Yeah. And Katrina got her shout out in there too. But uh, yeah, the, the, the folks we work with really across all of the divisions are just phenomenal. That the folks here, uh, whether or not they come from a military background or not, are so committed to the Coast Guard and the mission we do, and nothing makes them happier uh, than seeing the aircraft in use and uh, folks being rescued or just you know Coast Guard missions being performed in an aircraft that they had a part in, even if they didn't you know directly assemble it. Uh, maybe they're just you know working on uh, software. Uh, but they know that they they all play a part in what the Coast Guard does. So it's a, it's a phenomenal workforce here. Yeah. I can't say enough about yeah. it. Yeah, it seems kind of like a good a, a good place to end. Actually, um, just that, yeah, super proud of everyone that works here. We've seen it uh, firsthand as we've been walking around and and meeting people from all over, different backgrounds and stuff. Um, I got one more question. Okay, go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. Um, all right. I am a uh, new engineer, aviation engineer. Just finished my AEO tour. I have to go to ALC, right? And uh, what job, not saying that any job is bad at ALC for a incoming engineer, but um, are there any ones that are like, yes, I'm going to, 
you know, SRR, uh, I'm going to be the tech lead or whatever it's called. And like, oh no, I'm going to the BOD kind of thing. Like, is there any, is there anyone that uh, really stands out as something that's fun and, and, and good uh, for an engineering perspective? And I'm sure there's growth in every one, but. I mean, I think it would depend on what your, you know, what your flavor of nerd is, what's, right? What's so, the like worst, I, I told you, yeah. right? I'm not, I'm not, so I'm in the aeronautical engineering world, but I'm, I'm not uh, an engineer in the way Ryan is. So for me, uh, I prefer, I think the BOD or like IOD is like perfect for me. My MBA was very focused on kind of industrial management and stuff like that. And that's exactly the world that I get to work in. I think it's super interesting and I like helping figure out, uh, working with the incredibly smart civilian workforce to figure out ways to help them do their job better. I mean, yeah. that's really my role in this piece of the puzzle, but, but I could see for someone like Ryan, maybe when I throw to him, like that, that may not be as fun for him. Right. Like. Yeah, that's totally true. I think it's really where your interests lie. If you can find an open job that aligns with what, uh, what you know, gets you excited to come to work in the morning, uh, that's certainly the, the, the best solution there. But I, I really don't think it's a bad job at ALC. Uh, I will say my time as a product line engineer was was definitely my best year at ALC. Uh, it was certainly my my busiest year, uh, and but it was full of tangible uh, challenges and, yeah. and, and really really rewarding work over there. I feel um, like you're in the heart of it right there. You're, 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 you're literally at the center of things yeah. and, uh, and making and making decisions every day that really affect uh, our ability to support the aircraft. Uh, when you deliver a repair plan that's approved by Airbus that turns a red arrow green uh, that can continue to go support the mission. I mean, that is super rewarding to me, like some of those tangible benefits. Uh, that was, that was a fun job. Uh, uh, I'll always enjoy my time over to SRR, but the, I mean, the, there are really no bad jobs at uh, ALC. I mean, I shout out to the uh, ISD folks, red to green with the up and down arrows. Thank you for that, almost folks. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. There you go. And there's a there's a blue suiter uh, that works over in ISD right now. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Kildren. Kildren. Yep. Oh, really? He came nice. back from more. He came here, went to grad school, and then came back. So he's uh, he's our only active duty personnel working over at uh, ISD right now. Good for He's Kale. at ATC doing his recall right I now. Thought so, yeah. I thought yeah. so. Yeah. I thought I saw him walking around. And there. for yeah. you know, not there are a few jobs here that. Uh, sometimes get filled by the non-engineers too. So I would, uh, I guess I would offer that for, for the folks that want to, if they hear this podcast and want to kind of be, maybe be a part of this, you know, greater chance that you're not going to be a, you're certainly less likely to be a product line engineer, obviously, because yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a requisite set of skills there, but, yeah. um, but the other jobs here, there's some, you know, we had some people on the bod there, you know, people that have worked on some of the product lines doing different things and opportunity to kind of cross pollinate a little bit and, uh, you still get to fly, still uh, get right? To fly. So, I mean, if you don't like test flying, maybe this isn't the place for yeah. you. We do a lot yeah. of that. Um, but How many hours do you get a month? Uh, it, it really ebbs and flows right now. We're doing San Francisco with the echo transition there. Um, so, I mean, one of those trips is 25 to 30 hours in five days. Yeah. Uh, so, you, I mean, last semi-annual, I had 100 hours, uh, which Dang, is pretty good. That's um, equivalent to what a lot of our guys are getting in Mobile. You know, that's that's a I good think amount. Sixty of hours. to hundred on the rotary sides, probably. Okay. Hundred's probably on the high end, and sixty's yeah. probably maybe closer to like a normal semi. Yeah, but it depends, it depends on, on where the yeah. ferries are. At least you get to sit in the aircraft, right? And you get to get the the rotary. Spend a lot of time doing that. Yeah, plenty yeah. of time doing jet that. Fuel. Yeah. Ferry flights are super All the jet rewarding. fuel. Yeah. yeah, I've done yeah. six trips to the West Coast, and uh, every one of them has been. Uh, uh, super rewarding. In fact, I think we've gotten even some, uh, there's some fun sea stories with ferry flights too. Yeah, I, actually, yeah. Before we wrap it up though, <laughs> is there a favorite spot that uh, it, if, if anybody out in the fleet is doing a cross country east to west coast, is there a good spot that you're like, hey, you got to go check out this town? 
to it's land good in. to mix it up. I mean, it, it's uh, you know, southern know round in the summertime. Twice. Yeah, okay. Rough. Well, that's probably good. Yeah, uh, I think one of my favorite spots is cutting through Monument Valley. After you've done it three times, you've kind of seen enough uh, interesting yeah. land formations. Uh, Grand Canyon's fun, but you got to be super high over the Grand Canyon, so it's not. Yeah, uh, it's not as much. And fun, that's the same like with Yellowstone and all that. I mean, anything in there, you got to be high because it's both yeah. a national park and it's already high, so you're basically yeah. up there at 10k or so. <laughs> um, so I mean, those are fun, but uh, I really enjoyed uh, the kind of the Moab region. Yeah, so uh, yeah, very cool. That's fun because that is there's you know all that's in there is arches and Zion, and so you, you kind of can steer clear of that, and you don't need to. Then, I mean, that terrain is, I mean, the, it's you forget how high epic. everything there is there, yeah. even though it sometimes doesn't look that way. But then there's all yeah. these kind of cool canyons to look down on, and you don't have to be 5,000 feet over them. You know, you yeah. can be 1,000 feet over them and looking down and really getting a good look at them. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I um, I stopped in in Cody, Wyoming on my last one. Nice. And, uh, got a rodeo a, out there. Well, I had a friend yeah. that lives there, so uh, we stopped in and saw him. He was pre- uh, previous Coast Guard, uh, Kevin Winters. And uh so we stopped in, said hello to him, and then he gave us, he flies their ambulance out of there. So then he gave us a couple like of his routes when he's uh, cutting across the mountains there. And uh, I would have never gone those routes. And then you start flying down them and they're just stunning. Epic. I mean, yeah. just absolutely stunning. And yeah. I was like, dude, I would have never known about this without Kevin. So, I mean, that's kind of a cool thing about a ferry flight um, that you would never, I mean, you'd never get to fly a helicopter through there otherwise, right? Yeah. yeah. Finally made it through the Rockies in my last pass. And, uh, we have a, a couple of folks we know at the, uh, at the hat school there. We always call them pre-brief our route, make sure we're not uh, crazy. Yeah. Uh, so I was finally able to cut through, you know, flying over Leadville and some of those areas. Yeah. Did you land at Leadville? No, I didn't. Uh, the DA was, DA I think, 11,500 yeah. feet when I Summer, cut through there. Summertime. We landed oh. up in Yosemite, and it was uh, 9,800 feet on the DA. Ooh, so that yeah. Was, that, was, that was a fun experiment. So Yeah. Uh, last P course I just got back with, we had him drop us off at Eagle County and take us up to 14,000 feet just <laughs> to see what the uh, sim performance up uh, up there was. So we got to play around yeah. with the, the question of, uh, do I single up if I have an engine ship at 10,000 feet? Never, now? yeah. Um, so. Not unless you dump all the fuel that you have in 65. <laughs> but yeah, ferry flight's going to be a lot of fun. I picked up my uh, my first bit of icing on on a trip about a year ago. So I finally checked that box and I don't plan on doing it again. So Yeah, good. <laughs> good. I, don't, I don't recommend that box. No. <laughs> Can you get any other questions? No. This has been uh, awesome. Very informative. Thank you guys for taking the time to come come talk to us. Very, very much appreciate it. thanks for coming out. I think it's really cool you guys came out. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you're doing a great job with this podcast. Thanks, so. I appreciate it. You guys don't have any other parting shots uh, that you wanted to talk about, I, IOD, ESD? you have any yeah, other? Great place to come work uh, for, for really anybody. You know, it's uh, you know it's not really a, a, a true staff tour, uh, as, as OPM tells me, but a uh, fun place to kind of mix things up if you need a break from the operational flying, you know, and staying in duty. Awesome place to work, very rewarding, and, yeah. and you still get to fly. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, we like to end a lot of our podcasts with uh, just a, a piece of advice that you've gotten in your career that's been meaningful to you or um, at your stage, right, being both 05, something that maybe you passed down to those junior aviators. Um, anything that stands out to you in your career, we'd love to hear it. Uh, we'll start with you, Commander Gork. So, I mean, I, I, I hear you guys say that, and I've always thought, like, well, I, it's weird. I've thought, like, what, what would I tell people if I ever got asked that? And so I think one of the ones that I often came back to when I would be, you know, teaching junior pilots, like, is uh, – Right, you've heard of the three buckets, right? You got your knowledge, luck, and experience. And it's like, hey, that luck one, right? You start with it as full as it's ever going to get, <laughs> right? And so you can't, and you can only fill the experience one so fast. And so that knowledge one is the one that you have the most control over. Yeah. And so it's just like, you know, you need to you need to pay attention to it, and and you need to fill it as 
really, I think, especially early on, kind of as aggressively as you can, right? The, the learning curve is real. And so it, it is, it requires more work up front. That's not to say you get to slack off more as you've been flying. Right. But, um, but certainly, uh, I have, re- I retain more now about my airframe. I've had the luxury, you talked about four, four air stations. I've had three air stations, you know, I have, I've had the luxury of flying the same airframe. And so I don't necessarily need to study something as much now as I did, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. But, um, I think that's something that really sticks out. It's like, you're, you're, you're going to use up that luck bucket a little bit. And I can look back on a few times and be like, man, I shouldn't have done that. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I uh, like that a lot. Yeah. So yeah, I love it. I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll maybe take it uh, a, a different way and, and, uh, and don't forget about your work-life balance. You know, uh, yeah. your families are going to be there when you're done playing, uh, playing Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm at 17 years now. I'll be at 18 when I hopefully, you know, PCS next year. So uh, there's a good chance I've got one more tour in me, uh, which is really a crazy thing to, to, to kind of that say. That's crazy. So, yeah, yeah, I'm in the know, same boat. Um, yep. You know, every once in a while, uh, folks will call me commander instead of my name, and I, and, and I ignore them because I don't. Like, uh, who I, who like, is this guy? Oh, oh, oh me. Yeah. Oh, you're talking to me? So <laughs> the time has absolutely flown uh, and watching my kids grow up uh, now. So I, I think uh, focusing on that work-life challenge and uh, and watching some folks in a similar year group uh, make that decision that he's like, you know what? It's been a lot of fun. I'm at my 20 years, uh, but I'm really going to focus on uh, on the family side. So don't uh, don't don't lose focus that while you're in the Coast Guard. Uh, when you're done playing Coast Guard, uh, they're going to be the the ones uh, um, that you're spending the most time with. So. I think that's yeah. the most important part. I, right there. I focus on that a lot. Just when I talk to anyone, um, I mean, all of us could die walking out of this. We could die of a heart attack, and you'd be replaced instantly. The Coast Guard does not care about right. you, Ryan. Like they don't. Like mm. yeah, we the people around you care about you, but that the Coast Guard at large does not care about you, and you'd be replaced instantly. You know, and I think. Um, sometimes people will often sacrifice a little too much in seeking approval from, from the, the quote, you know, air quotes, coast guard. And they realize somewhere down the road, they're like, yeah, they don't care about me. And, you know, maybe they would have done things differently and, um, yeah, eyes wide open, right? Like you yeah, can't, absolutely. um, you can't, the, the coast guard has laid out a, a path specifically for, for engineers, you know, of like, Hey, yeah, there are some expectations that, yeah, you, you join this team and we expect you to, to go certain places. And one of those places is here at, at, uh, AOC, but yeah, make, make sure you take care of your family because you can't be replaced as a, as a dad or a husband, right? You know, there's, you can't. So yeah, yep. yeah. which is why what Sean said is also so important. Uh, yeah. 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 I like it. Sweet. Yep. Well, thank you guys so much. I uh, really appreciate you jumping on here and, uh, talking aviation with us. This is awesome. That was great. Yeah. Thanks, thank guys. you guys. Thanks. Cheers. We say goodbye, but never let go.